the passages that we have before us were set weeks ago as we were continuing, and I was planning to continue in our series looking at God's uh, great mission plan for the world and how we contribute and participate within that. And nothing has changed in that process. Being Ash Wednesday, it's appropriate that we come back to the origins of where God's purposes have been compromised, they have been uh, messed up by humanity. And within that, looking at a diagnosis of the human condition, understanding of what makes us tick and what we experience in life and throughout the world. Having said that, it is incredibly uh, important that we ground our understanding of uh, changes and impulses and directions in the world in ways in which we recognise deep truth, ancient truth, that is all too easily overlooked and forgotten in the modern age. The account that we've had in our series, looking at the two different creation accounts, Genesis 1, Genesis 2 and 3, are ancient accounts. They are primitive in the way in which they are expressed. They use the language which would be similar to how we describe uh, the Dreamtime language for Aboriginal people. They are designed to evoke deeper truth, awareness, through the form of a narrative. And the narrative speaks at a level which is both deeper and more extensive than the narrative in and of itself. Quite simply, as Paul said, that as was true for Adam and Eve, so it is true for every one of us. So in that spirit, let's focus on what diagnosis does this provide for us for where we uh, go so far astray from God's purposes and intentions. Now the passage we had in Genesis 3, I'm sure, is a familiar one to all of us. The story of Adam and Eve is indeed an ancient one. The characteristics that it talks about of why acts of disobedience occur are no less real, especially as the whole uh, environment of whether we can speak of truth, of good and of evil, of right and wrong, has been uh, contested so much in modern times. So what happened in the narrative? We have Adam and Eve placed in the garden, both in the image and likeness of God, both tasked with being about God's work and with the promise that the blessings of creation will be theirs to experience and all who enter into that space in God's provision. So the picture at the end of Genesis 2, one is of harmony and of trust and of hope in the experience of this fruitfulness. Now scripture does not tell us where the serpent comes from. It doesn't enter into the deeper questions, perhaps the philosophical questions of where does evil come from. But it does tell us its characteristics so we can recognise it for what it is. 
the serpent entered and initially, initially started the, uh, the descent that was to move into rebellion by asking a question premised on a half-truth. Did God really say that you may not eat of any trees in the garden? Did God say that? All but one word. (laughs) You may eat of any tree except the two trees at the centre. One is the tree of life and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You grow into the tree of life And you do so recognising the order, the instructions that God was provided. The determination of what is good and what is evil. As Eve corrected the serpent, it said, no, God says we can eat of any tree except the ones in the centre and the knowledge of of good and evil. Then the serpent says, ah, But God has an ulterior motive for keeping you away from that tree. Because if you eat of that tree with the knowledge of good and evil, then you will become like God. You will be an equal with God. You can be God for yourself. Now, of course, that is foolishness to think that the creator God who brought the world into being can be equaled by any other being. But that thought that wouldn't it be good to be gods in our own life, to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what suits us. And you can see how true that is in the modern world that is treading so lightly on the notions of good and evil, right and wrong. In the 1990s, there was a word that was shunned in Western media and that was the word evil. Didn't like the notion or concept, seemed very judgmental, seemed an ancient word that we can now move beyond in some sense. All that changed with 9-11 and the terrorist acts And suddenly the language of evil has come back. We can explain it in the sense that there is no rationality behind these acts. There's no justification for them. They are out and out wrong and evil. And there is no defence for them and need to be named as such. They crossed a boundary from what can be justified by way of a a defence in some description. And so that recognition that the reality of the world is that there are agents who do actions that are dreadful and cannot be dismissed or reduced into something that is, well, if you had their background, you might do the same thing. People have the capacity to make choices and are accountable and responsible for those choices. And God has put into place in order boundaries and a sense of this is the way in which life is rightly lived and this is the way in which life might be unrightly lived but that will end in death. That is a a life-denying way of life. 
to accept that that is a better option than the path of life is an act of rebellion and of foolishness and of tragedy. Now, in our present world, in our present news cycle, it is not hard to see examples of tyrants saying that we are the most powerful, might is right. That principle is actually an ancient one in the ancient world. My army is bigger than your army. I will tell you what is right. None of those empires has lasted, but they have created havoc. And so it continues into our present day. The importance of defending what is right, what is peaceful, what is of God is so important to not just the great dramas of warfare but the conflicts within our own homes and neighbourhoods and communities. The Russian philosopher and writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn who stood against Stalinism and spent periods in the, the, uh, the Stalags had a profound statement where he said that the line that separates good and evil runs through every human heart. We need to recognise that there's no us and them when it comes to those choices. On this Ash Wednesday, we confess that we cross that, that line ourselves. But we also urge our community, our government and our nation to stand with those who say this is not acceptable. The second half of the serpent's temptation wasn't so much about the half-truth that God doesn't want you to live and to live fully, to have life. It was also questioning God's character. God's purposes, it said, are very self-focused. He wants to keep everything for himself. Yet this is the God who had promised the fullness of life, who had brought creation into the world in a context of messiness and darkness and was bringing light out of that darkness, was bringing order and beauty out of that messiness. The temptation to turn and blame God or to question God's faithfulness is one that we must Stand against and hold fast on today. Let us focus not on tyrants, not on evil, not on acts of brutality, but locate that against the wider backdrop of God who is known for his justice, his righteousness, his love and mercy. That is where we find hope and confidence. As we enter the season of Lent, I encourage you, as I encourage myself, to look at those great truths, to take God seriously, to listen and to be attentive, embrace God's forgiveness and grow in God's righteousness through the empowering of his spirit.
Let us believe that Christians throughout the world gathered today will make a difference. Not because of us, but because of the one that we gather before. The one to whom we pray and reach out. Good will prevail over evil. Light will prevail over darkness. And God's purposes and God's kingdom shall grow. In Jesus' name. Amen.